The proclamation of God's word can be found on page 7 of your uh, folder. Our sermon text reading today is from 1 Samuel 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of, of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. 
So Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like always, thank you to Kyle and Rachel for helping us sing this morning. We really appreciate your ministry to us. And thank you to Robin for the very long scripture reading from 1 Samuel chapter 12. It is the entirety of the chapter. And it is this chapter that is commonly known as Samuel's farewell address. Typically, when you think of a, a farewell address or a farewell speech, you think that the person is about to die. And that's, that's not the case here. As we just read, it is true that Samuel is getting to be an older man. He has some gray hairs. But he is saying farewell not because he is about to pass from this life into the next, but he is saying farewell from his office as a judge. If you were to remember all the way back to the very first sermon from this sermon series back in September, we connected 1 Samuel to the book of Judges, that there's really continuity between the two, and that Samuel is the last of the judges. But as we've heard multiple times now, Israel is discontent. They are not trusting in the provision of God as their king. They want to be like the other nations that have a physical king. And so Israel has been requesting over and over again that they want a king. God relents, gives them King Saul. And now that there is going to be a king, Samuel is no longer needed as a judge. And so he is about to transition out of the role as a judge and into the role of a prophet. The prophet is the one who would deliver the word of God to the king and to the people. So Samuel is not about to die. We are going to hear again from Samuel next week, but this is his farewell address as a judge in Israel. Perhaps the most famous farewell address, at least in our country, is George Washington's farewell address. Of course, President Washington's second term has, has come to an end. In the end of George Washington's leadership, this represented a really an important milestone in the history of our country. This is going to be the, the first exchanging of power, a peaceful exchange of power. So it's a very significant moment in our country to give an address. And in George Washington's final address, his farewell address, he gives both warnings and also has hope for the future. George Washington will give warnings about political parties and about being overly sectarian, but there's also encouragement for the future about what it means for states to work together and encouragements for morality and religion. And that's typically how a farewell address will go. There's some reflection on the past that comes with some warnings, but there's always an eye for 
the future, about a better day in front of us. And that is essentially what Samuel is doing here. Samuel, in his last speech as a judge, is going to take some time to reflect on Israel's sin, and yet he has a hopeful eye of the future, hoping in God's grace. But he begins with reflecting on Israel's past. You notice in verse 8, Samuel reminds the people of their time in Egypt. This, of course, is when the people were oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And in verse 9, we remember that God in grace and mercy sets the people free. But here's the tragic truth. As soon as God's people have been set free, what Samuel says is the people forgot the Lord their God. Verse 10, then the people are fighting against King Sister and the Philistines and the king of Moab. Very similar to their time in Egypt, they're crushed. And so the people cry out again to God. God provided the judges and deliverance. They're set free. They have a land of safety. And yet we see this repeated theme. The people forgot the Lord their God. Nahash, king of the Ammonites, comes against Israel. The people panicked. Now, you would think after already being set free from Pharaoh and from Sisera and the Philistines and Moab, you would think the people would learn their lesson, but they don't. Instead of trusting God, when King Nahash comes, the people panic because they forgot God. So this is the first point in Samuel's farewell address. As he is reflecting on Israel's history, there's this repeated theme that God delivers, but the people forget God. Time after time, God has come through for his people. He's cared for them. He's defeated the other nations. He's set them free. The Red Sea, the manna bread, the Jordan River, the walls of Jericho, over and over again, God has come through. And yet almost immediately after God comes through, the people forget God. And as soon as they forget God, they move on to other gods. So the question for us this morning is, how have you forgotten God? See, this is not just an Israel problem, it's an us problem, a believer's problem, that we are like Dory from Finding Nemo. We are very quick to forget. But, but Dory, though, she, she, she's a cute little fish. She's innocent, just sort of ha-ha. She, she's a funny character, gets lost in the ocean. That, that's funny. It's not funny, though, to forget what God has done. That's a severe thing. When God comes through for his people and yet you forget and therefore you turn elsewhere, that is a very serious thing. Look, look at verse 10. When you forget what God has done, notice what happens. You're going to turn elsewhere. You see, the Israelites, they forgot what God has done, and so they turn to the Baals. They turn to the Ashtoreths. They turn to idols. That's what happens when you forget God. There's a hole in you, a vacuum, so you are going to fill it with other lesser gods. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn won the Templeton Prize in 1983, he's a 
a, a man from the Soviet Union. Somebody asked him, well, how do we make sense of the atrocities of the Soviet Union? How could it get this bad? Just the bloodshed, the death, the corruption. And his answer was, it's gotten this bad because men have forgotten God. You see, we're made for God. We're created for God. We are made to be found in God. And so when you forget God, it doesn't get rid of that desire. No, we take that desire and we give it to something else. We have religious impulses that cause us to look to other things, to do things that only God can do. Now, in the case of the Soviet Union, they forgot God, and so they made science, power, and the government their God. Now, science, power, and government, those can all be amoral things, but you make that your God, it's going to be devastating results. It might not be science, power, and the government for you, but there are plenty of other ways that you can forget God and turn to idols. Perhaps you have forgotten God, and so you are turning to alcohol for peace in life. Perhaps you have forgotten God, and so you are turning to sex for fulfillment. Or you've forgotten God, and so you're turning to stealing for gratification. You see, here's the principle. In our forgetfulness, we run elsewhere. This is the definition of idolatry. We replace God with different lesser counterfeit gods. And so Samuel, in his reflection, in this farewell address, he's saying, Israel, as we move forward in the time of the kings, you need to remember. You need to remember all that God has done for you. Do not forget what God has done. And really, all of the Christian disciplines, we talk about living a disciplined Christian life of prayer, and Bible reading, and Christian friends, and coming to church on Sunday morning, all of those are graces that are designed by God to simply help you remember what God has done. We're very quick to forget. We're so quick to forget. Sometimes we need shocking reminders. We need a jolt. Perhaps you've experienced this. It's, it's the middle of the night, you're driving, you're getting a little sleepy, and so you, you roll down the window just to get a, a rush of cold air. It kind of jolts you, it wakes you up. Or you wake up in the morning, you're, you're a little sleepy, you're a little foggy, you can't make sense of what you're supposed to be doing. So you get some cold water and you splash it on your face. We, we, sometimes we need to be woken up. That's the reason for this storm in verse 17, that the people have forgotten what God has done. So Samuel is going to ask God to do something striking that's going to help them remember who it is that they are in a relationship with. Now what we read in the, the text that this is the harvest season, so this would be a very dry season. The people would not expect for it to rain during the dry season. Now I, I started working on this sermon on, on Wednesday, and so in some ways my analogy doesn't work here because miraculously the, the sun is actually out today. February 4th, and the sun's out. It's like 40 degrees, sunny. I'm, I'm going to go home and mow the lawn. It just, it just feels so refreshing and good. But, but if I told you, Redeemer, you know, God wants to teach you a lesson. God's going to do something 
uh, astounding in our city this week. Tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up and it's going to be 35 and cloudy and misty and foggy. And you woke up tomorrow and it's 35, cloudy, misty, and foggy. You'd say, yeah, my, my, my pastor is not very prophetic. Because every day in Detroit in February is cloudy and misty and rainy. But if I told you, you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be 100 degrees. And there's going to be a drought in February for the entire month. You woke up tomorrow and it's 100, 100 degrees and it's cl- the sun's out and there is a drought. Then you would think, oh, God is trying to teach me something right now. That, that's what's happening with this storm. This is the dry season and never rains. And yet Samuel says, God's going to bring this great storm out of nowhere to shake you back into reality, to give you this jolt to help you remember the severity of the God that you are dealing with. We need to remember God. And sometimes, as an act of mercy, God might do something very extreme, very sobering, as a discipline in your life to wake you up to the reality of who He is. So do not despise those jolting moments, because those might be a grace to you to help you remember. So like George Washington in his farewell address, Samuel is warning the people. He's saying, I know you. I know how you think. I know how you rebel. Be warned. God is not small. He's severe. It is very weighty to forget him and therefore to rebel against him. Now, theologians will often speak of the severity and the kindness of the Lord, and both are true. And so far in this farewell address, we have heard of God's severity. But notice after the storm that the tone changes a bit. Samuel, as he's now going to begin to look towards the future, speaks of hope. So in this great storm, Samuel says, this storm is because you sinful people have wanted a sinful king. This is your doing. This is an act of judgment, a discipline. But in this great storm, verse 20, fear not. Now, you, 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 would, you would ask why. Why should the people not be afraid? They have sinned. Samuel says you have done an evil thing in asking for this king. Why, in the face of a holy God, should the people not be afraid? Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, it has pleased the Lord to make a people for himself. You see, the people have forgotten God. They've turned elsewhere. And yet, God is not going to ultimately forsake his people. We might be very forgetful, but praise God that he is not. God has made a promise that according to his great name, he will have a people for himself. It's, it's, it's that line, a, a people for God. That is the gospel thread of hope throughout the entirety of the Bible. If you, if you want to explain Christianity in one sentence to a friend, it would be this. 
God will be our God and we will be his people. That line is repeated over and over again in the scriptures, even in the darkest and bleakest situation. God always says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Think, after the very first sin, Adam and Eve ate the apple. They deserve to be cut off, and yet God still has for himself a people. God covers Adam and Eve. Think of the, the, the judgment waters of the flood during the days of Noah, judgment that is wiping out the world. And yet, on an ark, God has a sheltered people. Abraham, this pagan that is doubting, is actually giving his wife to another man. Yet through this man, God creates a nation of his very own people. I will be your God, you will be my people. This is the summary of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. It's the hope of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, ends with, I will be your God and you will be my people. Sin is, yes, very severe. It displeases God when you forget him. Our forgetfulness pulls us away from God. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to be separated And yet, the final note in this farewell address does not concern our sin, but rather concerns God's faithfulness to bring his sinful people back to himself. God will have a people. See, here's the point. In our relationship with God, God's promise to maintain a people for himself is more important than your rebellion. Now, is forgetting God wrong? Absolutely. It displeases the God when you displace him and trust in other gods. Does forgetting God lead to sin and idolatry and misery? It absolutely does. But what is more true, though, is God's mercy. That, that's the final note in the gospel story. That God gets his idolatrous people back. Look with me at, at verse 22. It says, the Lord will not forsake his people. So you might ask why. They deserve to be forsaken. The people have forsaken God. Of course they deserve to be forsaken. Why will God not forsake his people? The reason is because God has attached his very own name to his people. God has attached his holy name to the promise to preserve a people. If you're holding a a dollar bill, you have a promise on that bill from the Federal Reserve that that piece of paper is worth a dollar. It's a promise. Or think of a couple that is getting married. There is a promise given as a ring slides onto a finger. Here is a promise from God that he is going to have for himself a forever people. Now, the government of the United States is the wealthiest and most substantial government in the history of the world. And so when you're holding a $1 bill, you can be very confident that a worthless piece of paper is actually worth $1. United States, we certainly are aware that there have been other great governments that have fallen over the course of human history. So the United States can say, I promise you that that piece of paper is worth a dollar, but ultimately cannot be guaranteed forever. 
I think of a young couple that is getting married. They, they, they make their wedding vows with, with great intentions. But sadly, we all know of marriages that have fallen apart. And people have not kept their promises. We live in a world where we see promises not come through. Here's the difference, though, when God makes a promise. The promise from God is sealed by his very own name. This promise that God will have for himself with people is not sealed by a government. It's not sealed by a wedding ring. No, it is sealed by the very name of God. God's name is attached to this promise. What is the name of God? Why is that so significant that God's name would be attached to this promise? Go back to the story of when Moses meets God in the burning bush. And Moses says, by by what name shall I, I tell the people? And God says, okay, here's my name. Now, the name is, is, is very difficult to translate. Jewish people don't even say the name because it's so holy and set apart. But the name, when you try and translate God's name, means something like, I am. I am who I am. That, that's in the past, but it could also be something like, I will be who I will always be. That, that's God's name. You think, well, that's a, a simple name, perhaps an odd name. It, it's not simple at all. It's actually incredibly complex. I am. That, that, that means God just is. He just is. There, there's never been a time in the past when God was less. There's never been a time in the past when God was created. It also means there will never be a time in the future where God will be more. He is not in process. God just is. He is. That means he has no needs. He has no emotions. He has no weaknesses. There are no external forces outside of him that cause him to change. No, he just is is, and God will always just be. Therefore, if God says, I am going to make those people my people, you can have rock solid, 100% confidence that God will always come through because he just is. That's his name on this promise. And then God out of his name says, it is my good pleasure to bring these sinful people back to me forever. So yes, the people have sinned under the judges. And we will not be surprised that once we enter into the period of the kings, that the people are going to forget God, they're going to sin, they're going to rebel. The kingdom is even going to split. The kingdom is going to be sent into exile. It looks as though God's people should be forsaken and finally cut off. But what we know is that cannot ultimately happen. Because the God who just is, according to his name, has said, you're going to be my people. There was a time when I was tucking one of my children into bed. She was uh, a little nervous about something that was going to happen the next day. And, And she told me, she said, Dad, you're my dad and so you have to help me. And She wasn't entitled. What she was saying was actually very profound and true. See, her comfort in her anxiety and fears was that a dad is bound to do what a dad has to do. It's the same thing with God. When we sin, when we fall short, our comfort is that God is bound by his promise to do what God has 
to do. So there is a warning here in this farewell address. The warning is, do not forget God. Because when you do, you will turn elsewhere. But the reality is, you are going to forget God at times and turn elsewhere. There is a warning here about not turning to idols, but the reality is, you will. And this is why Samuel's response in verse 20 is so helpful. The people are convicted of their sin. They're asking for Samuel's prayer because they've done such an evil thing in asking for a king. And Samuel says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Samuel, he's very honest here. The first sentence in verse 20, he's very honest. Yeah, you've done evil, and yet his solution to this great evil is to simply and quickly turn the people back to the Lord. Essentially, he's just saying, yes, you have done evil, but just repent and go back to the Lord. See, there's actually two common errors when we sin against God. The first error when we sin against God is to say, you know, ah, my, my sin's actually not, not, not that big of a deal. It's, my, my sin is certainly not as bad as what you know, my, my spouse has done or what my kids have done or what my neighbor's done. I'm, it's, not, it's not that big of a deal. We try and sugarcoat our sin as a way of preserving our, our pride. But, but notice, again, what, what Samuel says in verse, in verse 20. Samuel says, very matter-of-fact, straight to the point, you have done evil. He's not, he's not going to beat around the bush. He's going to call sin for what it really is, sin. You have done evil. So the first error when we have done something evil is we're trying to sugarcoat it, but Samuel doesn't do that. But the second error, though, is we are aware that we have done a sinful thing, that we have fallen short, that we have done evil, that we have turned to other idols. And the second error is to recognize our sin and then just wallow in guilt. To act as though it's impossible for God to forgive you. Just, uh, you know, uh, woe is me. How, how could I ever be loved by anybody again? I've done such a bad thing. Can God ever love me? Can you ever love me? Just depression, whiny, mopey, self-flagellating to self-atone. But notice, again, what Samuel says, yes, you have done evil. That's the truth. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Yet do not be afraid. Just turn back to God and serve him. And we can do that in confidence because we have confidence that God has made a promise to not let us go. You see, even when we fall short in our end of the deal, God is not going to fall short. And God's end of the relationship is far more important than yours. To quote Jack Miller, quote was often used by Tim Keller, the gospel is this. We are more, more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. That's what Samuel is saying in verse 20. Yes, you have done an evil thing. And yet, do not be afraid. You're loved. Repent. Serve the Lord. And move on. Here's the final question from this farewell address. How exactly is this possible? How can these two tensions actually find a solution? 
Because in this farewell address, we see both the severity of our sin and the surety of God's promise. If you look very closely at, at, at the wording of this farewell address, you see both conditional and unconditional language. The unconditional language is, is verse 22, that God is going to have a people for himself. But if you look at verses 14 and 15, you see very conditional language. If you obey, then it will go well for you. And if you disobey, then it will not go well for you. I mean, these are if-then statements. If-then statements. That's the, the, the definition of conditional statements. If one condition is met, then there will be a certain outcome. So how do we make sense of Samuel's farewell address? And really, how do we make sense of the gospel itself? Is God's love conditional or is it unconditional? Because we know that a holy God just can't overlook conditions. He can't just overlook sin. No, no, no God's holy. He can't just let sin slide. And yet we also know that God is holy, therefore he cannot break a promise, this unconditional promise to have a people for himself. This is the tension of this farewell speech. speech. It's also the tension of the entirety of the Old Testament. Will God ignore the conditions or will he ignore his promise? Because both are equally important. And throughout the Old Testament, it feels as though God has painted himself into a corner. Just there's no easy way out. Actually, one of the reasons that Christianity is different than every other religion because every other religion says God is either not that holy because he lets sin slide, or God is very holy, therefore he cannot be with his people. That They don't have a solution to this great tension. So how do we make sense of this? On, on, on what side does it feel like God needs to compromise? And the answer is at the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no compromise in this tension. You see, at the cross of Jesus Christ is where the condition of obedience is met so that God's promise might be fulfilled. Jesus, in his life, satisfies the condition of perfect obedience. So all those if-then statements that Samuel is talking about, Jesus fulfills all the conditions perfectly. Jesus never forgot God's promise. Jesus never turned to idols. Jesus lived in perfect obedience. The conditional statements... If you obey, then you shall live. Those are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus at the cross. And then the gospel is that God credits to you, credits to you sinful people, God credits to you the perfect conditional fulfillment of Christ on your behalf. Therefore, because the conditions of obedience have been met at the cross, God is able to have a forever people for himself. See, this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.26 writes that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. In Christ, obedience is met. In Christ, a people are formed. See, at the cross, both the conditions are met and the people are brought back to God. 
Let's look at one final verse, verse 24. This is near the conclusion of Samuel's farewell address. Just love the simplicity of verse 24. We can often think of Christianity as being very complicated, lots to do, lots to figure out. We're never doing enough. How how do we think through parenting and marriage and work and society and redeeming the culture? It's it's all very complicated. But listen to to Samuel's farewell. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Just simple, faithful, Christian obedience. Yeah, you've sinned, repent, come back to God, fear the Lord, and serve him faithfully. It's from Article 24 of the Belgian Confession. This is a a, a relatively unknown Reformation creed, but it's, it's, it's a very important one. It's actually my favorite out of all of them. Article 24 is on sanctification, about how we are to obey God moving forward. And Guido de Bray, who's the author, who's actually a church planter that was a martyr, he writes, Therefore, far from making people cold towards living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. So here's why Samuel's farewell address is, is, is so helpful in culminating in the simple, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. If you do not understand the tension of conditional obedience satisfied at the cross so that the surety of God's promise for his people also meets at the cross, if you do not understand it, you will be afraid in life. You will be afraid. Perhaps you will be aware of a holy God, but like Guido de Bray says, all of your obedience will be out of cold fear of God. Because the weight of the relationship will depend on your obedience. And like we have seen in Israel, you will fall short. You will fall short and you will turn to idols and you will turn elsewhere. If you do not understand that conditional obedience is met in Christ, You will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for yourself because you're actually afraid of being condemned. But if you begin to understand the logic of the gospel, that there is no tension, but that love and justice meet at the cross in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you become a new person, a new man, a new woman. You actually begin to serve and fear the Lord, not out of fear of judgment, but because you genuinely Love him. It is true. You, like Israel, have done a great evil. But be not afraid, for it has pleased the Lord to make a people for himself. Therefore, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for this really glorious farewell address from Samuel. It is the story of Israel, but it is also the story of our lives. Father, we confess again to you that we are quick to forget. We are quick to forget all the ways that you have been kind to us, all the ways that you have redeemed us. Father, we confess to you that as we forget that we are quick to turn elsewhere and trust and hope in other things. And Lord, we pray for even though we have sinned, you will. And therefore, we are thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ, for we see the surety of your promise that even though we have sinned, you will not let us go. 
Father, work that great truth deep into our hearts all the more so, so that we might fear you and serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.